Welcome to the Directing Animation Livecast with Scott Weiser. In my many years as an animator and director, my most defining projects have been my short film, Layers, along with Vanishing Ink and Cirque de Solitude, two books which I wrote, illustrated, and pitched at several studios as feature films. And I have more of these feature film pitches coming soon. Today we have a guest who deserves my applause. And why does he deserve my applause? Well, because he wrote the music for my short film layers. And every time it gets screened, people applause at my name and then they watch the credits and I applause, applaud at the end because Ryan did such a fantastic job. His music has been featured on every net, uh, major network, including recent films for Netflix. He's worked for Disney Interactive. And I love all your logos on your website at the very end is a Lowe's. <laughs> so you've written <laughs> Lowe's too, <laughs> the home improvement store. Right. And uh, he's just a fantastic collaborator, fantastic musician. And one of the most mellow people you'll ever meet too so is there anything you'd like to add to that ryan my goodness <laughs> i know i think that that sums it up <laughs> thank you did you deserve everything i just said i don't know that's right the lowest no. thing no okay we'll get into that no we'll get into that yeah so uh everybody who sees the short film layers wants to hear about the the behind the scenes and uh, one of the most difficult things for me to be able to talk about without the other half of that process is the music. And uh, so I'm really excited for you to be here on the live cast and be able to talk about your side of that experience and, and how that went. So let's get into it. How would, how would you describe that experience? Collaborative. <laughs> Collaborative. Is, yeah, is a word. You know, I was actually, I was looking back because it's been a few years and I look back through some of our notes and some of our, the process, I guess, and the revisions. And, you know, it reminded me that you coming from the animation world as a director is different than coming from the film world. Mm -hmm. And I think there's much more community in a yeah. sense that everybody's kind of working on the same team a little more. It's something I really like about animation. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the animated films I've done have actually been student films. And so they weren't quite used to that step of the process. So on layers, you know, you already had kind of these systems. Like I'm, I was looking at the, the story graph that you would send. Uh -huh. I've never, I've never gotten that in a live action film. Yeah. Nobody's, ever, nobody's ever sent like a story graph that shows the, you know, the peaks of the drama. Oh, and, I did show you that, didn't I? Yeah, yeah. So the, the way you gave feedback over video, you'd be, you're the only person who's ever actually done that. Yeah. For for a project of mine, which mm -hmm. seems so. It seems like an obvious thing to do. And I imagine it's something you're probably are used to doing over somebody's animation or work. But again, in live action, I've never, I haven't experienced that. So it was very different. And there was much more of a, as I said, kind of collaborative aspect to it. Yeah, I remember you got really jazzed about that. <laughs> it was really unique. <laughs> I mean, is that pretty normal for you to give that feedback? That's for me. And I had just, I had been working in, uh, actually, I have to think of when that, so I did Animation Mentor, which is an online school, and that was a big part of that. Mm. And then I think when I was directing the music, I was also creating a creative division for this marketing company. But the whole the whole company was online. The whole company was remote already. They were way ahead of the coronavirus. Yeah. That was already part of that process as well. So it, it became very naturally to me. And, oh, and the coolest, you know, is uh, recently... I've co-composed something for a, a feature film pitch that I have coming soon. <laughs> Actually, it's, it's out. It's producers have been seeing it, but it's, it's still hidden. Collaborating with that composer was really awesome too. 
And we added to the mix these little, you can just do little voice records on your, in a text message. And that was really helpful because I could just listen to his music and then sing uh, yeah. what I, what I wanted to, to hear. I don't right. think a lot of directors singing what, what they want it to sound like either. <laughs> right. That's, that's, that's true. Yeah. Or they try. There's kind of a danger zone with directors talking about music. Yeah. In that, in that they, there's the people who know they don't know anything and that's yes. fine. Yeah. Then there's the people who think they know something, but really don't. <laughs> and that, that's that danger zone where they'll say very specific words and they really don't know what they mean. Like, Oh, get rid of the arpeggio. And there's, there's no, you know, it's just like things like that, very specific terms that you're like, that, what are you talking it's about? A, you know, that's, yeah. That's funny. Or I think we need more E flat. And you're like, what are you, you know? So yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's when you and you can go beyond that zone and then it's, you know, safe again, so, which is good. Yeah. And in this recent collaboration with Michael Bandmiller, I had I actually became very mindful of that, of how I was kind of maybe being a pain. You know? Well, no, I meant <laughs> uh, too much on the process. So I, I would always right. say I would always say to him, this might be a pain. And if I'm being a pain, let me know. He's he's a generous of enough guy. Uh, he's, he's But if you actually know what you're talking about and you know what you want. Is more of what I mean is, is now you're beyond that, you know. Yeah, yeah. Actually, you can actually be a part as opposed to just I don't know what the other people are doing. <laughs> well, and, and something that we often encounter in music, uh, it's a problem with music nowadays that I've heard people point to is that a lot of directors will use temp tracks, fall in love with the temp tracks, mm-hmm. and then the composer goes in and tries to create great things with their light motifs and right. tell the story and, and getting different feelings in different places. And the director comes in and says, well, I want it like the tip track. Right. That's well, not a new problem. Sameness. That's been going on for decades. I actually personally am not anti-temp track. Like I think most composers are just because the worst thing in the world for me is a blank page. Yeah. You know, I like at least, you know, the temp track is at least something that even if I think it's wrong, that's a starting off point. You know, I can say, mm, you know, this doesn't feel tense enough. But now I have an idea of why and how to make it more tense or something. So I I have I've definitely had times where the temp track was just, you know, the greatest thing in the world to the director. And it was a struggle to get beyond that. But usually I actually like it. Also, I really like if a director has a temp track in mind. They should share it is what I think, because there have been times where I'll try something and say, you know, no, that's not it. That's not it. And then they'll say, you know what? I've been thinking all this time and send this temp track. And so it's like, well, if you've been thinking that all this time, that would have been useful <laughs> to hear. Yeah. So, so again, I, I think it's a and I guess it's in that music zone where if you don't know a lot about music, the best way to talk about it is with music. You know, I think even if you do know a lot about well, that's true. Yeah, the best way to talk about it because it's like right. you're trying to describe a, a certain feeling, and it's like, how do you get that feeling? Well, look at this piece of music, which right. instrumentation they used. Right, right. No, that's true. I guess, I guess there's, there's no time that it's not useful. Yeah, yeah. I, I think for sure. I, and I, I like that phrase. There's nothing worse for you than a blank page. I think that right. would be the reason for that. And uh, you know, even though I had written, um, I had written the music and the, the lyrics and the a co- piano accompaniment for this. Actually, anything I've I've co-written, that's how I do it. But for this latest one, I did that as well. Although I left actually a couple holes for him, just to for let, mm-hmm. let him like add his touch to it. And uh, but I still gave him several pieces of music as examples and, and showed them as I talked about them in the video. And 
and showed what I and talked about what I liked about them and that sort of thing. Right. right. And where I wanted them to influence the song and where I wanted other songs to influence other pieces of the song. It, it, it's fun. It's so much fun. I think music is my favorite part of the process. Right. <laughs> Which uh, maybe shouldn't be because it's animation, but. Right. Right. <laughs> it brings it to life, right? It does. It does. It adds this extra storytelling element. Mm-hmm. We, what was it that I listened to? Oh, it was uh, Ron okay. Howard. Uh, uh-huh. His masterclass talked about how he felt like the score is actually a second, or the music, the composer is actually a second screenwriter. Mm-hmm. So you have your first screenwriter, and then you have your second screenwriter who's taking that screenplay and adding all the depth. Right. Well, even more depth. And you can also twist yeah. the direction. You well. can. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, that's partly how I got into this in the beginning was just that whole idea of yeah. using music to influence the way people feel uh, as they're watching a film, just I think is incredible. And, and I agree. Yeah, you can you can use that. I've never heard that term or that that quote. Mm-hmm. You're a second screenwriter. but It's in his master class. Oh, OK. So, yeah, okay. it's a good master class, too. He actually directs shows you how he directs. Mm-hmm. And he talks about how his, his relationship to music. And he's one of those directors that says, I don't really know about music, but I know the importance of it. So right. <laughs> let's talk about the emotions and then. And, and he works with people who do know what they're talking about. So that helps. Yeah. yeah. Hans Zimmer sort of knows what he's talking about, right? Right. <laughs> he's, he's, he's tried this a few times. So. His masterclass is good too. Yeah. I, I, I watched that one. Hans uh, is good. Yeah. Hans, Hans is great. I've been watching a lot, a lot of them. Will I draw? <laughs> I can listen right. to them. All right. And uh, so, okay, let's get back on the subject of you and music. So what have been the the best director collaborations you've had, like, or best experiences in collaborating with a director? You don't even have to call out a specific director. But I know there's there's a career political right. hesitance <laughs> to that. <laughs> like, yeah. much, like do I list everyone I've ever worked with, you know? Um, it was you, Scott. You were the best. <laughs> right. I, well, exactly. It's like, but then I say that, and I'm going to get a phone call, you know? Um, <laughs> Some of the more interesting ones that I will call by name. I, one of the more interesting projects I think I've ever done uh, was a Serbian film. And the director, I was in California and the entire rest of the crew was in Serbia because that's where the film was made. So that was a long distance, also a long time difference. And also a um, the director's English was excellent, but there was still a slight language difference there Yep. as well. And the film was in Serbian, which I do not speak. So that was a very interesting project. And I think it was similarly, it was a lot of communicating through music. Uh, at the time, this was like 10 years ago. So a lot of Battlestar Galactica was reference for that. Okay. Um, and a lot of, I'd send tracks. This is kind of a little, again, ahead of the coronavirus time. You <laughs> know, I'd, I'd send tracks at the end of my day, I'd go to bed. Their day would start over there and they'd send feedback. I'd wake up and we were kind of on different in different worlds that way. So that was a little unusual, I guess. It's almost like you're putting um, music into dreamland. And then when you wake exactly, up. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and what do they think? And there's, there's no, um, it's almost a relief because sometimes when you're working in the same time zone, you know, feedback could be coming any second. So that was something that was like, I know they're asleep. So I'm not too like anxious <laughs> to hear What do you think of this track? Cause I know they're not going to tell me. So your mind's not split. Yeah. And it does that. That can be, um, a point of anxiety when you have something that you feel really good about 
and you and you send it and you're waiting for somebody to write back like I, really yes. like this. I think this track is so awesome i really hope they like it and then yeah and then you're just waiting yeah just for it's just off in the void oh yeah oh it's torture right yeah. I, when you start out as an artist you kind of have this point where you you don't want feedback actually it's it's weird but it's right. like you want everybody just to love your work right then later on you start to crave the feedback and then you start to beg for feedback from and you have I have people that I ask for certain types of feedback from and, and that sort of thing. But I think the, the one that I still haven't gotten over is when I had somebody recently who watched a bit of, of this animatic that I have and didn't watch the whole thing and made a comment on it and then said, I'll get back to you when I watch the whole thing. <laughs> and it was just like, Oh, but your mind's going to change once you see the whole thing. And you oh, know, yeah. it was just, it was torture. Like, waiting for that feedback because i'm like right. i knew it would be good feedback too from this particular person <laughs> so yeah um, yeah i used to um i think this is I, I assume this is pretty standard with any artist is i used to think any feedback was wrong you know <laughs> i was just like you know i'd say oh here's the track i wrote for your thing and they say no, this doesn't really feel right and i'm like you're you know you're out of your mind it feels perfect and i think that like i said i think that's i i think most people probably go through that yeah. Luckily now I'm not in that place anymore. I think part of it is not not really at the time really thinking about how much more music there would be. You know. So every track I wrote was was a pretty big percentage of all the music I'd ever written. So this is like this is a big piece of, of my portfolio I'm showing to you. Good point, yeah. You know, and now ten years later, there's so much there's just hours and hours and hours and hours of stuff, you know, another three minute track. I want you to like it, but if you don't I'm not, you know, you haven't just ruined half of my portfolio by saying that, you know, it's just like, okay, well, and I also just, also the speed too. It's like, okay, I'll just do another one, you know, and it's not a, a painful thing. Whereas when you're just starting out, it can take a long time to write anything, you know? Yeah. So, so I think that's part of why the feedback used to hurt more. And that's now, a really good point. I love that, that point. I think I've heard it before, but it's, it's nice to remember it. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's not easily accessible mm -hmm. in my brain. And, and that's a good way to describe it. I like that a lot. And yeah. um, this is a side tangent, but I have to, I have to say it in your episode because it's a really cool story. So uh, back when I, I worked for university and I would pitch these commercials that would kind of get the, the message of the university store out to the, the students. Mm -hmm. And so one of the projects that actually, I think it was the first one that I did. I remember going to this library of music and I chose a piece of music and I put it in there. And then you and I started working in like years later, we started working together on layers. And then I looked at your portfolio and that piece of music was in your portfolio. <laughs> Wait, that was, that was a long time later. Yep. Oh, wow. Nice. So you were, you were my temp music. Right. right. <laughs> so someone out there was, you know, yeah. Yeah, which was cool. I remember it was a great piece of music too. Right. Thanks. I remember thinking, oh, this gets exactly the feeling I want. And, right. And yeah, so even your early stuff was good. Right, right. <laughs> not those, those people liked it. Right. <laughs> you, were, uh, you were showing promise for sure. Right, right. I made it this far. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we, we mentioned one of your favorite uh, director collaborations, which mm -hmm. was the Siberian film. What are some others? Again, it's, it's the political thing, right? So what we would be looking for is something like, okay, there was one director I was working with and I had this light bulb moment 
Or there's right. other, and because we're not naming names, you could actually tell about there was this other director that you I know. Okay, uh, no, I'll, I'll, I'll name I'll name a name specifically, and and there's a specific thing that is is really great about this collaboration. Um, I work with uh, this director Ben Shelton on a lot of projects. A lot of soul, we used to do a lot of soul pancake stuff. Uh-huh. We did um, Candy Jar on Netflix. Yeah, and something specific because uh, I'm thinking the light bulb moment. The I guess I'll I'll start with the end. The light bulb moment was when I I realized the right solution for uh, a track, and I was on like version ten. And uh-huh. the great thing of the, the the way that connects to the collaboration is that he's so uh, open to it being wrong, and let's just try something else. Yeah. You know, I think there's there's been some directors where, you know, you're like, oh, what do you think of that? You know, there's some I should say there's a million ways to score a scene. Yeah. I say, what do you think of this one idea? They might think that's not what I had in mind. This isn't going to work. It will happen sometimes, you know, like this. Oh, you know, we're not on the same page at all. And with him, it's kind of the opposite. He's like, no, not what I had in mind. Either like a little more like this or just, you know, what else you got? And then. Like I, said, I don't know if it was like by version 10 or 15 or 20, I was like, oh, you know, this this would be perfect. And not only is there that freedom to like get it wrong, but I think it's also all those wrong things also led to what I felt like, I was, oh yeah, this is this is what this track needs and this scene needs. Mm-hmm. And then that version 10 or 15 ended up becoming the main theme of the whole film. Ooh. Uh, and we, you know, went back and rewrote the main titles, moved tracks around in all different places where they were because everything kind of had changed. But it's because of that willingness to just, you know, let me hear more. Now nah, that's not it. Let me hear more. Is actually kind of freeing, I guess, and very, and, and I guess, uh, comforting. You know, to know that like it's on that feedback thing again. Yeah. He might not like this, and if he doesn't like this, I already know it's not a big deal. And he must have been compu- communicating well for you to be okay with doing 15 versions because that uh, <laughs> was painful. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was a big project for both of us. So we were yeah. willing to, to do that. But also, mm-hmm. you know, I think we've been working together for many years. And there's also um, just a friendship there that, yeah, I guess it makes it comfortable with a brand new director, maybe when that relationship isn't quite as established. It's, I guess, on, on their side too. Are they willing to trust that by version 10, it's going to be right? Yeah. Or, or how long are they going to be like, you know, this is just, you know, you've done nine. This is obviously not working. So I guess, it's, I guess it does go, go both ways. I guess he has to kind of have to be trusting as well that we yeah. will, fi- that we will find it, you know, what he yeah. has to find. So. Well, that was an excellent, excellent example. Right. <laughs> I learned from it. And, and since I'm here to learn, I have another question for you. And it's it's something, and you might not even remember. <laughs> okay. But there was a moment where I had an old theme that I had written. And I was wanting something a bit more in-depth for layers. I thought that the theme that we had currently was a little bit too uh, simple. right? So I sent you this theme and said, what do you think of trying this out? And I never heard anything about it. <laughs> Do you remember what happened to that? <laughs> really? I never responded to that. Uh, <laughs> because I was anger, angry, fuming in my room and like saying, how dare you? <laughs> I have, I have the, I have the, um, the archives. Yeah. Yeah. Let's say, uh, and I have motifs from you and I have a logic session where it looks like I've been playing with them. 
So I don't remember specifically what melodic material might have come out of it. Oh, interesting. So maybe um, it did influence it. But I do see that. I, I guess I apologize for never responding to that. Um, no, no, it's okay. I it's, do see that I, I played with it. I know what you're talking about. Also, yeah. You know, because I see that I have it and I have it in a session that looks like several minutes long of, of at least sketching. Well, that was kind of a my bad. I didn't realize I was calling you out on the spot. I thought I would be exposing myself as a bad director. No. <laughs> <laughs> up on that. Um, the thing is, it just it popped in my head and it's always interested me like, hmm, I wonder what happened to that little one thread because everything else in the composing process to your side was just a really wonderful process. I was, I was generally very impressed with what was coming out and how you took that. I, I'm actually glad we kept the simple theme that you had in the beginning. The dun, 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 dun. It wasn't right, that. Right. And yeah, so you took that and then it just kind of changed over the, the process until it became a pretty complex theme that was almost Joe Hisaishi-esque. At right. the, like the merry-go-round kind of. Um, where it's dun, 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 dun. And it, it, uh, it, it changed and actually became its own theme over the story. And I, I thought right. it was beautiful. I do have several layers of thoughts on layers of thoughts on that. Uh, yeah, I was listening to that yesterday and appreciating that I was able to kind of keep reusing that theme in kind of negative ways and positive ways and yeah. tense ways and peace, peaceful ways. And that's something I, I occasionally teach composition students and something that I cannot hammer enough is reusing material, um, oh. which sounds, that's the art of storytelling. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I think everybody's so afraid of being boring by saying the same thing over and over. But really, you do say the same thing over and over and over just in different ways. Yeah. Um, and I think I just it's, it's so hard to get people to accept that and believe yeah. it. People end up usually rambling. So as you said, it, it's so simple. And when you just hear it on its own, you're like, really, it, this, this isn't enough. You know, in, in six notes, it's not enough to help tell the whole story. But by the time you get to the end and you've kind of heard this simple motif go through everything it's gone through, now it's a character to you. Now it's uh, it has more meaning. You know what's so awesome? I think that motif I sent you ended up in that last part. There you go. I didn't realize until I just sang so that. Oh, it is there. Like the... where it came from? <laughs> yeah. So you actually did see it. It looks like it's I have layers motif one. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was dun 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 the first three notes of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's just the first three notes. That's why you didn't know, because I took the first three notes. I took the first three notes and then used that as everything. Ah. You you sent me eight bars and it was just like I don't need eight bars to say this story. I need three notes to say this or six notes. Wow. So cool. But I think when you go back, like everybody loves John Williams's music, and I think he's a genius, but really like go sit at a piano and just pluck out a melody it there, there's nothing that that's that ridiculously outstanding just on on the naked melody on its own i think it's so much the reuse he's so good at just he keeps using those themes over and over we've been hearing them over and over for decades so we love them and you can um, see them of course anyone can and i think that i, I know just i guess speaking to composers and maybe this is true of artists with just a pencil sketch, there's a certain level of trust that just because you write something that seems too simple, that seems, you know, this is only six notes, this doesn't tell the story, 
compare it to another artist and their theme is actually the same too. So you have to just trust. Yeah. Everybody's theme looks simple when it's just a pencil sketch, you know, mm-hmm. work with it, develop it, keep it going. Um, yeah. And it has more meaning that way. That's really cool. And on the, on the subject of reincorporation, there's a book called Impro for storytellers. It's about improvisation. Mm-hmm. So there's uh, a guy who teaches improvisation and it's, it was cool. You, you used his exact words almost. He tells, he'll have, because you think of improvisation, you think, okay, I'm going to go down there and I'm just going to be creative and funny, right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to get out and, and I'm just going to make the audience laugh, right? And he's, that work makes for the worst improvisation, he says. Right. When you're just responding to the audience, just being reactionary. You can see that everywhere in our society, you know, when it, you can see in little kids, like they do something funny and then they try to do it again and it's just not funny. It just doesn't land. Right. It's, they don't realize what made it funny in the first place. Right. So he'll tell people to be dull, be boring. <laughs> yeah. He makes them be boring. And, and then he teaches them the art of story. And one of those is you reincorporate, right? Mm. You don't have somebody bring you a cup and say, hey, look, here's a teacup. And he, you're like, oh, look, there's a bird. You know, don't change the subject. Right. You take right. what you've been right. given, you accept it, and you do something with it. And then later on down, down the story, when the teacup's been forgotten, you're like, oh, remember the teacup? That's the solution to capturing the bird, you know? Um, right, right. Although I just thought of an exa- a bad example of a tea, <laughs> a teacup in a film, but we won't go into that. All right. Um, <laughs> it, you know, that makes me think a little bit of um, jazz. And I think how non-musicians think of jazz, they think that a bunch of people get together and just kind of make it up. Mm for four hours maybe or whatever, or even just for one song and just make it up for five minutes. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, isn't it incredible that they just could know that this, and they don't realize that there's, you know, a 32 bar looping chord structure underneath everything. Yeah. You know, for most tunes, you know, we'll say mm-hmm. yeah. that somebody, even a musician could just drop in in the middle of the song and know exactly that an A flat's coming next. Yeah. So it's actually incredibly structured despite giving this appearance of being the, but what's, you know, what's the freest kind of music you can think of jazz. Yeah. It's, inc- it's incredibly structured. Yeah. So it's yeah. Hard to do. <laughs> hard to, hard to structure. I think or, it's what artist music to do is jazz. Um, I don't know. I went to a jazz school. It's hard to know. Oh, for me. Um, for me one of right. them. Yeah. I love jazz. So I, I generally try to go toward jazz. Well, if you have experience, well, I guess if you have some experience with it, you'll, you, you will start to see the structure and feel the structure. And I, and I do yeah. more and more, but I remember at the beginning, like I wanted my things to be jazzy. And I just, it was so hard for me to make it jazzy, mm-hmm. you know? And part of that was lack of knowledge, you know, lack of an, an understanding of how to do that chord structure and, Right, right. Thing and um, and how to write that and seventh chords and you'll be fine. And my son wanted to learn the Incredibles on the piano, like oh, the nice. theme. And so yeah. I started playing it, and I just it was like light light bulbs were going off in my head. I was like, oh, this is amazing, right. <laughs> you know. And I started to understand like where the jazz was in that music right. <laughs> until I sat down on the piano. That I was like, oh, this is how you get the Incredibles effect. You, you know? have this beautiful mind moment, and you had augmented chords floating around you. Yes, it was the well. Don't don't tell my wife, but <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> there there are some hallucinations coming in the near future. So. Right, right. <laughs> but yeah, what what a beautiful movie though. <laughs> that that movie is yeah. fantastic. There's something I wanted to revisit that you were talking about as well, but I can't remember what it was. Oh, what was it? 
we're talking about we brought up John Williams. We talked about sketching. I bookmarked something in my head that I was like, we, we're going to come back to this. Oh, Sketch. yeah, developing a motif. Yeah. So some of my favorite motifs are actually pretty long. Okay. But when you break them down, for example, uh, Indiana Jones, you have to dun 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 right? That's, that's the motif. That's, that's the motif. And then he plays with it and creates a theme. Yeah. I, I would like to talk about the ins and, ins and outs of writing a theme. Uh, that's one of my favorite things. Oh man! <laughs> think about and and I want I want when somebody sees my film to kind of start walking away and like they're humming they're humming something from the the movie you know, and then like right. they have to go back to it. And uh, oh, I, I wish I could talk about this current project because it was cool and it was cool to see my daughter had seen it, my little four year old, and then she she came by and she said I want to. I want to watch this thing. And she said the word from the, mm -hmm. from the song that I repeat the most. And I've tried to ingrain the theme in that word. Right. And I was like, I did it. <laughs> you know? Or we did yeah. it. And I did it together. You attempted. Yeah. Yeah. Um, still though, it's still a little bit of a mystery. Like I'm always a little afraid that I won't be able to get a theme that is that good for the next song in the, in the movie. And, you know, it's going to be a musical. So we've got to have a lot of these really strong songs. Right. I think, as you said, repetition is the key. This is, again, this is the thing, the main thing I talk about with my students. And one of the go-to, Indiana Jones is a go-to for me, mm -hmm. but the Game of Thrones is another one. Dun, dun, da, da, dun, dun, da, da, dun. There's that. Mm -hmm. And then the melody, the cello over it is just that slowed down. Dun, dun, da, da, dun, dun. So the whole thing, mm -hmm. it's just dun, dun, da, da, dun, dun, over and over for two minutes. Yeah. Which again, when you're writing that, you like everyone will think I'm insane. I can't write this, but that that's untrue. Everybody loves it. You yeah, know, it's great. And it's I think it's because of that repetition is the reason you can go away humming it. You know, yeah, there's, there's meaning to it. Um, I'm actually a pretty what's that, traditionalist when it comes to writing themes. One of my I get not not one of my my favorite music book I've ever read is called Analyzing Classical Form mm. by William. And it's who? Uh, William Kaplan, and it's a really deep, like a you know, a textbook analysis of Mozart, Beethoven, and Haydn, mm. and essentially how did they write a theme? And it's very because it's classical, it's very structured. There's a lot of logic to it, but obviously the music is endured, so there's a lot of art to it as well. And just explain things the way no other book on form or anyone else has ever really explained to me. It's just like, these are the, these are the ingredients and these are the different ways that they're put together for different effects. So I actually, and if again, back to John Williams, you can pull up any John Williams thing for me and I will say, Oh, that's this that Mozart did too. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's, so there's, there's certain patterns and there's certain structures. I think those really help with people just being able to, understand the theme and remember the theme kind of feel it in its space the the to, to the game of thrones thing it's not just that he repeats the same lick over and over there's actual musical punctuation marks as well that help you understand uh, it. yeah there's, there's cadences there's structure to it so yeah it's a little more than just going into a trance on a on a single motif but there's there's a craft to it i should say oh yeah absolutely and it's thrilling I, it's thrilling i think to so it's, it seems to me, and you can you can correct me if I'm wrong. There was a there's a YouTube channel called Sideways that I absolutely love that analyzes music, 
And he talked about um, doo-wop versus, I can't remember the composer, but there was a piece of music that he breaks down and analyzes. You know, the doo-wop phase of music, mm-hmm. what they realize is that if we repeat the same chord structure over and over, then people will get a little rush of endorphins. Because mm-hmm. what people are looking for is a pattern and they want to know where the pattern ends, right? When the pattern ends, they, they're like, okay, I get what the pattern is. And so in the pattern of this big, long classical piece, I wish I remembered what it was. I should have watched this. <laughs> I should have done yeah. my work. But uh, yeah, it takes you to the end of the song, which is at least uh, about two minutes long, to actually get to the end of the pattern. Right. And, and for somebody who understands music, you listen to that, and it is just thrilling to see how long this musician is able to to not complete that thought. Right, right. <laughs> Stay away from completing the thought. That's part of the reward, but it takes a level of understanding and a level of intellect. intellect. Right. So that's one side of the musical spectrum. And then you have the doo-wop side, where it's like saying four chords repeated over and over again. We're, we're repeating the words even over and over again. There's only you know 20 lyrics in the whole song, 20 words in the whole song or something like that. So what that does is it gives you little endorphins. Right. Little endorphin rushes and, and it becomes satisfying. It's the thing you you hum when you're, you know, sweeping the floor or something like that. The thing I say a lot um, is give people what they want, but not how they want it. Or give people what they expect, but not how they expect it. Yeah. Uh, and my, my theory is you combine the two approaches. Right. You 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 use the you use the principles of doo-wop to create something that's catchy, something that's memorable, but then you explore it in in surprising ways. Right. That, and there's a lot of um cliche necessary to set up the expectations. For people to expect something, you have to actually make the pattern known. Yeah. Otherwise that surprise isn't going to be meaningful. There is no, oh, that's not what I expected, because you weren't expecting anything. You know, they were just rambling. So I, yeah, so I, I I don't shy away from sometimes using just that standard, like a doo-wop progression, you know, mm-hmm. that you've heard a million times. You're like, really, yeah. this progression again? And then you you twist it somewhere. Yeah. Um, you can't twist it if you're not using what people are already used to. Um, yeah. Which I think in storytelling happens too. You you know, I think in very few in very few people's favorite movies does the main character die because you expect them to win. But... Even if you get what they win, you might still love the ending because they won in a way you didn't expect. You know, I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but you know, I guess I guess the, there was that controversial thing in Hollywood about subverting expectations. It <laughs> is, it is, Jedi. and there's 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 a difference between just like ah, you weren't seeing that coming, to it being satisfying and like actually being like oh, you weren't seeing that coming, but it still satisfies what you were kind of expecting to in that world. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I don't know if I, I think I've mentioned this on a show before, but there was a certain series that uh, I, I'm not all about the spoiler culture. Right. <laughs> I realized that a great film, you could, you could tell me a spoiler and I would still see it as a great film. Alfred Hitchcock would, he would tell you his own movie in his trailer. <laughs> right. Yeah. And still like his movies are some of the most thrilling out there. So. Well, people say, you know, don't spoil the ending of Titanic. If you haven't seen it. <laughs> It's not, it's not about the ending. It's not about the spoiler. They've actually done research where if you know how something's going to end, you actually will enjoy it more when it's well-written. I believe that. And so this spoiler, like, don't tell me how the movie, this thing about the movie, it's like, oh, no, I, I totally want to do that. I'm trying to push back against it. It's, it's, I think it's kind of some kind of human instinct or something. But um, anyway, that's a long way of saying that I knew how this series ended. And the series was long. 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I knew there was controversy around the ending. So I knew that half of the audience was like, ah, oh, terrible ending. And then half of the audience convinced themselves it was a good a- ending. You know? I'm pretty sure I know what, where we're going with this, but. Uh, well, yeah. So I'm what watching. show this is, I mean. Oh, you know what show it is. Interesting. You'll have to tell me in after. But um, so the, I'm watching the show knowing how it's going to end. And I actually thought at the beginning of season five that it was, oh, I, I'm really giving you too many clues. <laughs> I thought that the end was right. Okay. It's a crazy right. thing. Because right. we're broadcasting the possibility of it, it coming, you know, but then they kind right. of subverted your expectations and they were doing all these twists and stuff but three episodes from the end i was like this is the wrong ending this is the absolute wrong ending no 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 you did it terribly what did you even do there? <laughs> like i knew that this ending was it was done to say hey look what we can do you know we so you actually thought kind of halfway through that it would have been satisfying mm-hmm. and, then you, and then you changed your mind mm-hmm. i did and by the end, I, I was able to come to my friend who'd recommended the series, and I told him exactly why I thought it was the wrong ending. He's like, oh. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he convinced himself it was the right one, and his wife was on the opposite end of the. Right. <laughs> the and I never spoke again. Yeah, but the reason <laughs> is because they promised the, they promised the opposite outcome much more. Hmm. It was always broadcast that, that yes, this this other possibility exists of right. the ending they ended up with, right? But you know, there's this, there's this other thing, and I think there was a way to get both. That's my theory, and without saying what the series is, I can't I can't tell you. You could have gotten both of the effects and, and satisfied it that way. But you, you've got to realize that um, when you're telling a story, you're you're kind of a slave to the story in a way, right? You're not the master of a story. And you might be the one who brings together the characters, but then you've got to listen to, to what the story is teaching you mm-hmm. um, and not, not like start. You, you do sort of start with the end in mind, but you, you know that there's possi- other possibilities, right? Because there's a, there's a big difference between propaganda and, you know, a living, breathing story that is timeless. Yeah, I don't know where I'm going with that, but... <laughs> I, I guess that... Um... Yeah, certain situations have an inevitable outcome is one part of it. And yeah. so, and so it, it's it's unnatural and it's obvious to the audience when you do something that's just, uh, you know, if there, if there's something that it's inevitable and you don't arrive there, it doesn't feel natural. Yeah. I guess. And so that can be part of why it's so frustrating. Yeah. Uh, and then we have series where pe- they didn't know where they were going at all. Mm-hmm. And people just love love the story, love the story. And all of a sudden the end comes and I'm like, ah, oh, no, terrible ending. Uh, you see that happen a lot too. <laughs> there's, there's a show again, if we, if we want to, I don't, whether or not anybody's spoiled by this, I really doubt it, but there's a show um, that I think went on for more seasons than they expected, but yeah. then they used the ending that they obviously had set up in season one. And a lot of fans were really mad about that um, uh, because, because the story had over time gone a different way. Yeah. Yeah. So there was a certain, it felt like on the creator's part, there was a certain stubbornness, you know, that they because rather established this was going to happen in season one. Right. That the, yeah. And if it had only been one season, I think everybody would have been okay with that. Yeah. And everything had over 10 years or however long the show went, I think it, went, it was kind of long, you know, it went different directions and that was no longer the inevitable conclusion. Yeah. Um, 
Well, and my, I usually end the show with the get wiser moment and we're already on that subject. We, we just tend to naturally go there, I guess. But uh, the, the get wiser moment is I generally ask my guests, what is the best approach for getting the highest amount of truth into the film and the highest clarity of truth into a film and truth is such a dicey subject, right? Because I might have my viewpoint that I grew up with, or I've discovered a new viewpoint and I might think that that's the truth. So I might start a story saying, oh, the story's going to end up this way. But I like your point that, you know, that's how life is. Like I might at age five think that this is the truth, right? <laughs> and uh, I don't go to five-year-olds to, to get advice about the universe. But <laughs> um, and, then, and then at age 15, there's like a different view of it. Like I, I understand it differently. And, and then you go and you talk to somebody who's 80 and it's like, if you really listen, and they've lived a good life, you can tell that there's something there that you're just not getting. <laughs> and I think a good storyteller needs to be aware of that. You start writing your story as like a five-year-old, right? Right. <laughs> and by the end of the story, I think you should be a better person. That's, that's my, my opinion. And, and I've heard other people mirror that. And part of being a better person is maybe the, what you thought was the truth when you started that story. Is not the truth by the end of the story. Absolutely. I mean, I think just personally, specifically, the most obvious thing is my values before and after my son was born, which I think is a pretty common yes. thing. Yeah. And just where 20 year old me uh, saw 30, 40, 50 year old me. And now, with, with just with my family, I'm like, you know, none of that's relevant at all. Even if I talk to that guy, I would say, like, you know, you're, you are not wrong to want those things, but you're wrong to think that that's the only way it can be, or that's the only way that, or that that's truth, I guess, you know, yeah. that, that those, that those ambitions are necessarily truth as opposed to, you know, one of many valid and outcomes, I guess. Well, I like to use the example of inventing the flu vaccine in the dark ages. <laughs> like how right. could it have happened? You know, <laughs> Right. There are so many people questioning this and questioning that and then turning that and then learning this new thing. And then, you know, there's there were so many pieces of the puzzle that back in the, I don't know, 1500s, right. they wouldn't have had the 1800s. They wouldn't have had the information on how you make a flu vaccine. Right. And but the truth, it doesn't mean that it wasn't true back then. That's the other thing. That truth did exist back then. Right. Just we didn't know it. <laughs> that, that I mean, that's kind of a mind blowing thing to think about, because then I don't <laughs> So many, uh, we know right now, you know, <laughs> and, and that's kind of the thrill of being a storyteller. And as a musician, you're also a storyteller. And I'm really excited to see see what you come up with next. Well, thank you. You as well. Um, yeah. And there's all these dark secrets. What? Oh, which dark secrets? Your, your secret projects that you're. Yeah, they won't be so dark for too long, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully we get funding and all that stuff. And they make the, things. The light will shine. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah. All right. Well, we we have to end there is now is the best place to find you ryanleach.com. Yes. And then they can find all your social medias from there and L E A C H.com. Yep. And the name's actually here on the screen. So it's R E N L E A C H.com. That's the one. And uh, until next time, enjoy. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. You have been watching the Directing Animation Livecast with Scott Weiser. Audio version edited by Kiera Horowitz. Copyright Scott Weiser, LLC 2020.